Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, and this is a Tuesday episode, so as usual with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. A uh, couple of notes. One... Uh, Wait, I get, I get to say hi, right? Mm, what no? I decide to do. Okay, yeah. sorry. Um, number one is, and this is something I'm supposed to do at the top of every podcast, which is we are broadcasting from P&T Knitwear, a bookstore and podcast studio on the Lower East Side. Please come check it out, 180 Orchard Street. Um, and if you are looking for a place uh, to host a podcast and you're looking to do it for free, uh, P&T is happy to help you, um, number one. Number two, this is a Tuesday episode recording on the Friday before because I'm going out of the country, uh, so this was the easiest time to do it. So, you know, perspective is kind of imagined sort of late last week as opposed to whatever might drop uh, on Monday or over Do you think weekend. your thoughts are going are, are gonna to last? I don't think my... Th- no, I think it's more that like, what if something were to happen in the next three days that would change some of what we discussed? I'm going to have to call you in yeah, Italy. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think those are the only notes. So, okay, now you can say hi. Oh, hi. Hi, Bradley. How's it going? Um, we want to start by talking about Joe Manchin, right? Is this is this the last we're going to hear of Joe Manchin for a long time? Or is this... I, no, it, it might be for, for this reason, right? So there's, there's two things to discuss here. One is um, the deal itself they cut with Schumer, what's good, what's bad, all of that. The second would be, you know, Joe Manchin did what will be, I assume, a case study in the exercise of power, right? Which is, he said, there's only 50 of us. You need all 50 of us for every vote. Therefore, if I just make myself my own independent island and I'm willing to take, you know, the criticism from the left and everything else that comes with it, um, I will have a tremendous amount of power. Um, He used that incredibly effectively. I think that's probably the best time he's ever had in his life. But we are now heading into August where there'll be a recess and then the midterms will be in November. I think everyone fully expects the Republicans to win the House. The Senate is up for grabs. But either way, um, once you have a place where it's either a divided Congress or a Republican Congress, Manchin's you know power goes way way down. And so this may this may be his last glory. So so let, let's back up and just make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. So Schumer cut a deal with Manchin to support the reconciliation deal. What did Manchin get out of doing this? Um, a few things. One is he proved his point, which is to say, I am fiscally conservative, and if we are going to spend lots of money, it has to be accompanied by you know cons- commensurate revenue increasements, um, and that's what happened, right? Whereas we spent trillions and trillions of dollars during COVID um, with no real revenue offsets, and while I still think it was probably generally the right thing to do, um, it is also the major cause of why inflation is so high today, right? So I think. In, Manchin's view is we can't keep making inflation worse. So if we want to spend money, it's got to be money that we actually have coming in. So I think he got that. Number one. Number two. So that's is, a big. I'm just. I don't want to cut you off, but that's a big, broad public reason as opposed to like a parochial West Virginia reason. Well, that's number one. Number okay. Parochial would be, it's a it's a green energy climate deal, and it does a lot of very very good things if you want to reduce climate change, but at the same time does provide a lot of base protections for businesses in his state, right? So, and three, uh, from a legacy standpoint, now he went from the guy who was blocking anything on climate to the guy that actually made it happen. So that's pretty good for him. And four, it was time, right? Like, cause, like I said, if he waited a few more months, he may have lost the opportunity completely. So when he started all of this in, you know, early 2021, he knew that he had a limited window 
to actually finally cut a deal. He knew that just based on history, it was extremely likely that, that Congress would flip from one party to the other, and then he would lose all of his leverage. So I, I suspect that his plan all along was to do something like this, and he got it done. So as you're explaining, the window is closing, but the other 49 Democratic senators, what do you think they learned from this? Are, are, are some of them anyway thinking like, hmm, I kind of missed an opportunity you to know, be a... Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and one that I've wondered about quite a bit. Um, but I, I think fundamentally either you have the personality to do what Manchin did or you don't, right? right? Because what you're saying is, yes, I am part of this caucus, this group in a world where everyone's divided up into one camp or another. But you know what? I am totally comfortable being out there by myself, being criticized just as much by my own party as by the other party, um, getting beat up on Twitter, getting beat up from the left, having my home protested, all of this stuff, it takes a lot of balls to go through all of that. Cinema has done it to some extent as well. Um, and I think most members, you know, people run for office because they want validation, they want affirmation, they want everyone to love them. And, you know, doing what Manchin did took, you know, required sort of being willing to sort of forego some of that, at least in the short term. And most politicians will always pick their immediate emotional needs have any sort of long-term outcomes or results. Beyond the sort of political game playing, what do you, Bradley Tusk, citizen, like about the, the bill and what do you not yeah, like? Yeah, so a few things. So one is I, the climate provisions are really good. I mean, they're talking about being able to, by 2030, you know, lower U.S. emissions by as much as 40 percent. That has to happen, right? And so uh, while I understand that there were other climate provisions that didn't make it into the bill and some people were upset about that, by and large, it is a meaningful amount of money with very specific tangible programs that ought to have a, a, a positive impact on U.S. climate. Now, whether that is enough to ultimately prevent the kind of catastrophic harm that's being um, predicted by the experts, I don't know, probably not. And even if the U.S. fully did its part, you still have the problem of the rest of the world emitting, right? So this is it's not like one, one country can kind of control its own fate here. But with all that said, in, in a body Congress that we say always does nothing, can't solve any problem, can't do anything, they did at least take some meaningful, tangible steps towards climate. They also cleaned up a few holes in Obamacare to help make access to prescription drugs more affordable. That's pretty good. Um, look, they raised taxes in a bunch of different ways. The, the most meaningful one is a 15% minimum tax on corporations. Uh, but the one that affects me and, and everyone in, in venture capital and private equity and hedge funds is the elimination of carried interest, mm -hmm. right? So carried interest means that when I make a fund investment, um, to carry is the piece that the, the people who work at the fund keep uh, is in return for their work. So typically it's 20%. So after I've, let's say I have a $100 million fund, after I've re returned $100 million in capital to my investors, I get 20% of every dollar going forward. It, up until now, as long as the company that I invested in had been uh, previously a year, then extended to three years, but had been on our books for that long, I paid capital gains tax rates as opposed to regular income tax mm -hmm. rates. Um, and that just makes a huge financial difference for you know any venture capitalist, everyone in private equity, anyone in hedge funds, because you're paying probably as much as 17% less in total taxes. Um, there's been a movement for a very long time. And what's time. the reason for that? Uh, the, the, the argument is it will help spur investment. And if you don't have this then you, know, you want private equity, you want venture out there, especially venture to kind of create new companies, new innovation, all of that. Take and, risk. And you have to incentivize it. And one way to incentivize it is to provide better tax treatment. Tax policy at the end of the day, and actually it's kind of fascinating, right? It, it's not really about math. 
It's about human behavior, right? It's about how do we create incentives and disincentives to get people to behave the way we want them to behave? So when you had a carried interest deduction, it was we want people to actively invest in new companies uh, and to buy new companies and buy small companies and make them bigger and better. And therefore, we will provide beneficial, t beneficial tax treatment for doing so, which sends to the question, if you ask yourself from a public policy standpoint, is, is eliminating carried interest bad? The real question is, okay, well, people like me now make fewer investments um, or quit investing altogether because our tax burden is higher. I don't think so, right? But do you know people, your peers in, in, in venture capital who feel strongly on the other side of this? I mean, do, do yeah, you? Yeah, sure. You do. Most people. Right. But I mean, people that you talk to, I mean, I'm not just reading editorials and like, like, is there a... But, you know, but here, here's the thing, because 99% of them are, are pretty apolitical, despite probably thinking they understand politics. So their arguments are... I work so hard, I risk so much, I sacrifice so much, people don't understand how complex this business is. Um, it, it, they basically think it's fair that they have this as opposed to this is really good public policy. And the reason why it's hard to argue this is a really good public policy is, in theory, if, if they believe that, then we should say, okay, carriage is being eliminated, I assume you're retiring tomorrow, right? And the answer is going to be no, I'll still make a lot of money, just not as much money. Does there tend to be a split between private equity guys and VC guys in terms of how they see it? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. You know, I don't. I don't. I, we work a little bit with the National Venture Capital Association, so I have a better window onto how they handle things than, than the private equity trade groups. Um, look, you know, venture is is much more hit and miss, right? So if you have a company that really, really hits, you can make a tremendous amount of money, and of course, the tax difference can be really meaningful. But for most of the time, if, if a company's going to zero or you're getting a 1x or a 2x, the differential's not going to be that big of a deal, right? Um, but in private equity, it, they're not shooting typically for a 20 or a 50x return. They're just trying to consistently get a 3x called or a 4x or 2.5 on whatever they're investing in. And so they're subject to kind of less volatility, but at the same time, this will hurt their underlying business model a little more. Let's talk about the economy. Um, there's some debate about whether we are technically in a recession or not. Yeah, I mean, we, I, we, we are. If, if the definition is two consecutive quarters uh, of negative GDP, then yes, it was 1.5% in Q1 and it was 0.9% in Q2. So that's, that's the, the technical answer. But the real question is, um, are we actually in a recession or are we in the perception of a recession, right? And that's, to me, what's really interesting, which is, there's reality, there's perception, and we now live in a world where they're both so equally shaped by different factors, and each one impacts the other, that you know you, you kind of have to look at whatever shaping perception is just as important to reality as reality itself. So why does the economy feel really bad right now? It's really basically inflation, right? And the stock market's going down, but that's sort of commensurate with- Well, it's not going down this week, but- But overall, um, yeah. right, it's, it's down a lot, crypto's it's down up a lot. It was up in July. Yeah, but overall, it's down for yeah, the year. Yeah, no, right? this year. Yeah. Um, and inflation is definitely a problem for sure. But, you know, it's it's also the result of kind of a couple of different things which should get better, right? So one is, you know, the trillions of dollars the U.S. spent for COVID, um, not backed by any kind of revenue offsets, clearly just put too much money in the system. But the new bill, the mansion we just discussed, does have revenue offsets. So if we go back to a world where Congress is paying for whatever it is they're spending, that gets better. Two would be supply chain. Um, it's still a problem, but they have certainly made progress on figuring out how to make the ports more efficient, 
Um, how do you sort of redo your supply chain itself so maybe you're less reliant on shipping? Uh, there seemed to be in the media, like, do you remember that article about, like, how cream cheese was like, you know, you couldn't find cream cheese? No. And it was, I mean, it was just like a year ago, like last summer. And it was amazing. So I kept, I kept, I kept looking for cream cheese, and I saw it everywhere. Like yeah. I was like, so where, where, where is there a great shortage of cream cheese? Yeah, um, don't know. Um, so, so there, it's, I mean, that's just to, to to sort of underscore your point that there's this, you know, you can you can find in a, in a place as big as the United States, sort of moments of scarcity or or abundance or whatever. It's you know, the the there are car lots that are just absolutely overflowing, and that there's some that are empty. So yep. it's hard to it's hard to figure out. And then the data. I love this. Uh, Jerome Powell's. They were. They were. A reporter was asking him about you know the sort of future rate hikes, and he said what all their decisions would be data dependent, and it reminded me of the like you know follow the science thing that every you know governor and politician was talking about during COVID, and like data dependent. And you're like, well, what data and what exactly does that mean? Well, like, and, and what shapes the data, right? Yeah. So like, but look, ultimately, if you think about it. The, the causes for the economy now would be inflation and a tight labor market. Right. Um, the labor market is starting to soften um, because interest rates are going up, which means demand for consumer products goes down, which means, therefore, you need fewer people to do the work, number right. one. Number two is because um, the perception of the economy is worse, all of a sudden leverage shifted from the employees back to the employers. Um, it's still pretty, if you are a really talented person and you say, I will take this job, but only if I could work remotely, you're still going to get that, right? You know, we st- I'm not going to take away remote working from our employees because one, it seems to be okay. Do a lot of your hires these days make that stipulation? Not generally, but we have like two, two really big hires that we did on the consulting side, for example, where we only got them because they agreed, we agreed that they could mainly stay where they are. One was in DC, one was in Albany. But those are places that aren't bad for you to have people no, in. No, right? it's not. On the flip side, we hired a new partner for the fund and we did insist uh, that he come to move to New York. So, um, but, but generally speaking, as the labor market softens and as interest rates go up and demand softens, that ought to bring down inflation. And so then the real question is, um, there's the, the economic reality or at least the perception or at least sort of the factors which is interest rates inflation unemployment and the calculus the sum of these different factors tends to say this is gdp the economy is good the economy is bad and the stock market reacts accordingly right um and the job market reacts accordingly um here you know the job unemployment is still really low right and we're certainly in a position where um you could argue that with the exception of higher gas prices and higher consumer product good prices in general, um, people are still doing okay, right? Um, and so then it's, can we pivot from the reality of okay back to the perception of okay <laughs> without having to sort of plunge down even further first, right? Um, so it, it's hard because this is all pretty new, right? And so Jerome Powell made his statement. What do you mean new? The means of communication have changed so rapidly and their usage over the past 20 years that it used to be that the information that was being evaluated by the markets, by the public, to kind of decide if the economy was good or bad was much more static and fixed than it is right. today. So Jerome Powell can and, say- and Probably much less widely sort of debated yeah, and understood, right? Right. Powell can say it's all data dependent. And I think he's right. They're going to raise rates or not based on inflation and their attempts to curb it. But at the same time, 
a lot of perception goes into creating that data. Right. Um, and I think that's somewhat of a new phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? So question is why? One is the obvious answer of everything, which is the internet, right? So the internet tends to take trends and make it seem like this is how everybody feels and this is how it always is and always will be, <laughs> right? And so for example, crypto boomed when the internet was sort of pro-crypto. When the internet decided they were not pro-crypto, crypto fell quite a bit. Um, did the underlying value proposition of crypto change? No, n not at all. In fact, in theory, it should be even less volatile because it's, it's not even based on an asset class that has P&L, right? So if a company has P&L and, and losses exceed expectations or, or profits don't, don't match it, then it kind of makes sense for the value of that company to go down. You know, crypto is basically just based on sort of ideology and momentum. Um, now, look, it does bring it to question. We talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, would you... Would it be better to limit the amount of tokens traded to those that have some sort of intrinsic value only? I, I still think that would be a good idea. But overall, it, it's the macro perception that is shifting, that is shaping how we feel about the economy, how we feel about the markets. And we're in a world where, A, we're in a constant sort of hyper-feedback loop because of internet and social media especially. B, um, the media, earned media itself, has flipped so much. So instead of it being, we're going to report the news and kind of let you decide, it's we are aligned with this particular segment uh, of the political wing realm, and we are going to say everything that sort of works to their advantage. So if you are Fox News, it, even if ultimately you say, you know, the job market is still most people are working and, yes, inflation's up, but overall it's really not that bad, that would be perceived as good for the Democrats, right? And their viewers, and the way they make their money is by being hyper, hyper-partisan and only taking one perspective, so therefore they have to write, oh, the economy is really weak, just like uh, most of the mainstream media did that to Trump um, during, during his term. So you're reporting that now only seeks to reinforce certain political views totally independent of the actual facts and logic on the ground. So you combine that with the speed of the internet, speed of social media, speed of Twitter, um, and then also finally is kind of bad leadership, right? So like, yes, the 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 mansion thing is a victory for Democrats in Washington. It's a victory for Biden. It's great. But overall, if you have a world where you see that the perception of the economy is, is collapsing and you need to head that off, I don't think the Biden administration has done a great job there. They've either basically pointed fingers at other people, like saying, right. oh, it's Putin's fault, or you know, it, it's the fault of these you know, massive shipping companies that, that can't get their act together. Um, and instead of pointing fingers, the, the better approach would have been to say, I am on top of this completely. Here are all the measures we're taking. And you kind of established some trust with the public. And then they can kind of, one, listen a little more when you can explain why things are the way they are. But also, if you show them constantly, hey, I'm doing everything I possibly can. So that could mean we're going to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to reduce gas prices. Or we're going to allow drilling in certain places we want to create more domestic production of gas. Or we're going to have a certain type of sales tax holiday, whatever it is to incentivize consumers, to, to bring down prices for consumers. You could come up with creative stuff all of the time and do it. That's not the approach of this White House. Well, it wouldn't even have to necessarily be that creative. I saw a pretty interesting graph on Twitter, the hated Twitter, that showed that you know on, on a number of sort of key indicators, Trump's like greatest economy ever of 2018, like the current economy in key metrics is basically stronger. Um, and and so there's, there's plenty of things to talk about that aren't... Um, you know, that, that, that don't have to be, you know, it's not right. lipstick on a pig. It, it's no, but it requires nuance, which your old 
business journalism has lost completely. The internet <laughs> never had it to begin with. And a truly extraordinary political leader, which obviously we don't have with Biden, certainly didn't have with Trump, um, can't really shape it to say, this is the reality, trust me, believe me, and let me establish that trust. Um, and maybe we just live in a world where no political leader can do that at this point. But certainly Biden hasn't been able to, and obviously certainly Trump couldn't. Let's talk about you, the fund, and some of the conversations you're having with with your portfolio companies about what the recession means for them and and how they should be thinking about their business. Yeah. So, you know, whether the recession is real, perception, or some combination of the two, um, the impact upon startups and founders is significant because there are many, many, many fewer deals getting made done right now. So usually, you know, in the past... You know, are you guys slowing your, your deal making? Yeah. I you mean, we're, we're definitely doing deals, but but it's not... Everything is moving slower. And, and in part also because, you know, we're not like this mega, mega fund where we cover the whole round. We take the whole round or we're the lead every single time. And so we lead about half the deals that we're in. But basically, most of our deals require other funds being involved, too, in some capacity. And even if we want to be super active, if they're all pulling back, it still has the same kind of effect. So, um, you know, even six months ago, 10 months ago, a founder basically could go out and raise money whenever they wanted. Um, and as a result, they could be as free spending as they wanted. They could focus as much on growth ahead of sort of fundamentals as they wanted. They didn't have to worry that much about their burn or their run rate um, because there was always more money. Right? right Now we're in a world where there's not always more money. So what are we telling our portfolio companies? And it's nothing, by the way. That every VC is telling. I don't. I, usually, in this pocket. Well, a lot, a lot of VCs are super negative. I mean, you guys yeah. aren't like that, are you? No, but but the advice we're giving them, I think, indicates a bearish outlook, right? Which is, first and foremost, you got to cut your expenses because you need. You have to assume that this market, this economy, this state of mind will probably exist for at least the next eighteen to twenty-four months. Mm-hmm. Which means there's a good shot you're not going to raise money in the next two years. You have to take what you have and make it last. Right. So that means cutting uh, operations, cutting jobs sometimes, changing the focus of the business, all of that. So that's number one. Um, number two is it, for a long time, as long as a startup was growing very quickly, kind of hockey stick-like growth, no one really cared about the fundamentals. didn't matter if you were losing money. didn't matter if you were, you know— getting all this growth by effectively subsidizing consumers with all kinds of private venture money. It was just growth or nothing. Um, and the problem is, and this is why a lot of companies that were very valued high privately then see their, their share price decline precipitously when they go public, is yes, all this growth and potential is, is very nice, but at some point the point of corporations is to make money. Um, and if you are growing because you're effectively just giving shit away constantly to consumers, and there's no real fundamental economics underlying it that allow you to then turn a profit, um, you're a lot less valuable than you were before. So, so number two is um, this notion of growth at all costs. You know, founders should shift their mentality a little bit to like, how do I build a real sustainable business? And by the way, that should be their mentality anyway, right? So as someone who, you know, I didn't raise money for anything I did till I started doing the, the fund. Um, and everything else was just bootstrap like most normal businesses. And P has to be bigger than L if you want to make any money. Um, now, look, the other businesses that I have after my fund are not super high growth technology businesses, right? They're personal services businesses of one kind or another. So um, it's a little different. But I think there's now a little more focus, at least on like, are you actually building a company that can make money? So that's number two. Number three is, um, 
you know, you have to really be able to sort of have a clear vision for what you want to achieve in the next 18, 24 months and focus on that. It can't just be like when I try 20 different things and throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Because if you do that and then you run out of money, you're not going to raise more money, right? Are you seeing the personalities of the founders a little differently given the change in the climate? I mean, do you a see like, bit. oh, this 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 person's up for it, this person may not be? Do You is- you see a, a little more humility, right? So I have one founder, and I won't say his name, but told me, you know, five months ago that the next round was going to be valued at $2 billion, and the deal got done at $200 million, so one-tenth of what he said it would be. And look, the market changed dramatically, and things that he would have gotten away with in a different climate— uh, that funds would have sort of overlooked or paid less attention to, that stopped being the case, right? So as a result, the valuation declined commensurately with it. Um, so you see a little more humility from founders, uh, number one. Number two is when founders are pitching you, I think that they understand that the leverage has shifted um, and they have to be pretty accommodating to funds that they want to invest in their company. But but you know what? It's not radically different because ultimately the founders are who they are, good or bad. Their ideas are what they are, good or bad. And even when times are really good, they're still asking you for money, which means they're pretty nice and pretty deferential, right? <laughs> they so better like, be, right? Yeah. So it's not it's not that different. Um, but yeah, you see a little, a little bit of change among uh, founders themselves. And then just you don't see this endless rush of reporting in the tech media of just all of these crazy valuations, all of these crazy investments, all of this, you know, someone raising a $20 billion venture fund, all that stuff, because things have changed. Well, the doom and gloom of the big tech companies, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of, of Facebook, where um, I guess Google's also like paused hiring, but Facebook, uh, you know, they're, 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 they had a, you know, Digital media growth or ad growth was like, you know, not as crazy on fire as it's usually been. Yeah. Um, and you'd think the, you know, the the sun didn't come out today. Like, it, it's it's interesting to see the level of seriousness on what, you know, at least from the outside, look like, you know, not catastrophic conditions. You, you wonder what they're seeing or, or is it just because they're used to these, like, this run of great times? Or I mean, it's either used to it and also because everything was so overvalued. Um, the minute reality steps in and people take a look back and sort of see what's behind the curtain, they get really, really scared. And as a result, um, they pull back significantly. So there's some article that I sent the other day, or this morning, I think, actually, where it was economists, it was, it was Kahneman, Turetsky, and then again, Richard Thaler, basically just saying people actually um, are far more aware of what they lose than of what they gain, right? So in order to get someone to risk something to make $10, you might have to threaten them with losing twenty or twenty-five dollars as the alternative, right? Or um, so, as a result, people become much more aware immediately of what's not working, and then they act or sometimes even overreact to that. Do you think that, you're like that? I mean, I think I'm a human being, and all human beings are <laughs> you like still that. are. It's true. Yeah, uh, despite my best efforts. So, um, yeah, I think so. Look, I, I am generally pretty optimistic about the future and that's why I do what I do for a living um, but I totally get into those sort of swirls of everything is terrible and everyone is terrible I'm usually able to get myself but that doesn't seem macro oriented it's not like you're looking at, at at economic data and like it's changing your mood like that right no it's not but but think about let's shift from the economy to politics right 
if you were to listen to this podcast on a consistent basis and be asked by someone, what's Bradley's political view? It's that everything's a fucking disaster, right? <laughs> um, everyone's stupid. Everyone's corrupt. Everything is bad. And until we change the way that we understand all of this and execute it, it's not going to get better. So arguably, at least in the world of politics, I am a, a Cassandra. I am a doomsday sayer. So, you know, look, yesterday there was the announcement this week earlier of a, a new political party which was the combination of three other parties, uh, Reform America, Serve America, I think, and um, Forward Party into one party called the Forward Party. It's run by uh, Andrew Yang and Christy Todd Whitman and David Jolly. Um, and I've been part of a little bit of the, the brain trust of putting it together. And even then when the, the comms people yesterday asked me for a quote, my quote was like, anyone who thinks the static quo is okay is delusional. Um, this is our last best shot. We're not going to be one country in 25 years if we don't fix it. And that's why this is so important. But it was a quote basically loaded with catastrophic comments, right? So um, so I think overall, yeah, I, th I think I'm as susceptible to this as anyone. And I also grew up in this sort of immigrant New York Jewish culture where for some very fucked up reason, there's this perception of kind of nobility in, in suffering. Right, so whoever has it the worst is ultimately the best person, the person that deserves the most of your sympathy. And people go so far out of their way to talk about how bad everything and how hard it is for them. All that really does is make them miserable, makes their spouses miserable, makes their families miserable. But nonetheless, at least in certain cultures, you grow up thinking that, oh, um, you know, I, I actually am a fuller person, a better person, whatever it is, more complete person if I have all of this suffering, and therefore you kind of lean into that. How has your understanding of the economy changed from, you know, as you've moved from being a political guy to still being a political guy, but having a, a one foot firmly in the sort of investment venture capital world? Do you, do you I mean, you, 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 you're talking about it now with a pretty serious uh, uh, sophistication. Is that, is that something that you, you, you were kind of good at before and schooled in before? Yeah, yes is it and no. Um, you know, I happened to go to law school at the University of Chicago. It is a completely long economics-based curriculum. So I think the I was, law school is. Yeah. So I was exposed to much more of that than I think your average law student might be. And then in government, you know, I was responsible for Illinois for 60, 70, 80 billion dollar budgets, depending on the year. Um, that's a lot of money to be responsible for, right? So, you know, I, I think I had different experiences. And then also, and this is probably really valuable, before I became a venture investor, I spent seven years, six, seven years building a you know, consulting firm where it was just dollar by dollar, employee by employee. And I think so I developed a real appreciation for what does it actually take to make a profit? What does it take to actually build a business? And while the thought process, the metrics uh, of venture are different, um, I think all of that collectively has helped me understand our founders pretty well and to, to assess and predict what consumers might want. And you know what? If you take the one basic theme of this podcast, which is political input shape policy outputs, which means people do what is in their self best self-interest at pretty much all times, and you have to account for that, consumers are kind of the same way, right? So if you can identify what's in their best self-interest and then say, is this product that we're selling, is this service that we're selling, is this thing that the startup is doing going to therefore meet that interest, you can gauge, just like you can in politics, this would be a good investment to make or this would be a bad, bad investment to make. Okay, Bradley, we're going to wrap it up with two quick questions for you, and then I have one recommendation. Okay. Um, the two quick questions. So this week, 
um, the Mets beat the Yankees in the two games they, they played did. at uh, City Field. Um, based on what you saw, do you think the Mets uh, match up pretty well against the Yankees for the postseason? Yeah. So, uh, for, so I was at the game Wednesday night. It was amazing because it was like a playoff-like atmosphere. And, and to be clear, Mets fans, of which I'm as big as you can get, um, are petty and vindictive, and we hate the Yankees because we're incredibly jealous of them. And as a result, <laughs> we care a lot about their failure. I don't think Yankees fans think about the Mets much one way or the other, right? So just want to beat them, but don't, the fact, yeah. right? They want to win the game that they're playing. But if they're playing Baltimore the next night, they're focused on Baltimore, right? Whereas for us, the fact that we beat the Yankees two games in a row, and in the first two, game, two great games, yeah, first game we were down two nothing the first inning, came back to make it four two in the first. In the second game, we were up two nothing until the eighth. The Yankees tied it and then we won in the bottom of the ninth god that was a um, terrible peterson was oh. amazing peterson was bad but you know they've got to be able to to move some of these starters into the bullpen so and and what it said to me was the grom's clearly coming back this week which i thought was the most encouraging sign of all so then the question is do the, do the mets and the yankees match up well so one is are the mets a fully complete team no um but the grom should be pitching basically by the time this podcast comes out and if he is anything resembling jacob de that makes the mets meaningfully better Two, there's a trade deadline on August 2nd, and so uh, both teams will trade for players. The Yankees already traded for Andrew Benintendi. Um, that should fill They're needs. probably going to get Castillo too, right, from the Reds? If they give up enough prospects, they will, yeah. But, you know, the Mets need left-handed relievers. The Mets need uh, a DH that hits lefties really well, and they could certainly upgrade a catcher in third base. Um, the Yankees, it's interesting because, look, they're a great team. They have the best record in baseball. Um, Aaron Judge at the moment is the best player in baseball. But with all of that said, they were probably outperforming their abilities a little bit. Right? Oh, sure. And, and things tend to regress to the mean. So the Yankees hitting, I'm not sure, is dramatically overstated because um, the people who are hitting really well, like Judge, like Stanton, like Carpenter, are really good. Rizzo, they're really good hitters, right? right? So they're even if they're a little bit above their sort of normal production. Well, Carpenter's playing out of his mind. Yeah. I mean, Right, Carbon Pippa, the one. But still, he's a good baseball player, right? Your pitchers, Garrett Cole is as good as he seems to be. He's Garrett Cole, right? He's a top five pitcher in baseball. Everyone else seems to be both in the rotation and the bullpen on the Yankees side overperforming. So, and by the way, a lot of teams win the World Series, whatever sports championship, because the team overperforms over the top course of the entire season and playoffs, and that's why they win. Other times, things regress to the mean faster, and by the time the playoffs comes around, the team's back to where they were. I would say the Yankees are. A really good team, um, but they're, they're in the same class as the Astros and the Mets and the Dodgers and the Braves. You know, they're, they're not in a different class. Um, okay, this is a really silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, would you eat a piece of fish caught in the Gowanus Canal if you were sure it would not make you sick? Yeah. You would? Yeah, I think so. So I just, there's a chart that I saw this week um, published in a, in a, in a substack called Hellgate that said um, you can eat blue crab, striped bass, Bluefish, rainbow smelt, and Atlantic needlefish in very limited quantities um, that's been caught in the Gowanus and, and New York Harbor, according to the Department of Health. And, and the, the value here is that it will produce more things for people to eat and will reduce costs as a result. Are these really healthy fish? or Like, yes, okay. But <laughs> no, I don't not, think there's a big societal benefit. Right, yet. it's not like we're talking about the Pacific Ocean. So I, think, like, I think we're just talking about how the Gowanus Canal is not as disgusting as it used to be. It's better than it used to be. Look, even when I was at the Parks Department a million years ago, Henry Stern would occasionally swim in the East River or the Hudson River as a publicity stunt. Right. Uh, and it worked. He did not swim in the Gowanus Canal, though. 
No, I don't think so. But if anyone ever did, it was probably okay. Henry. Gizzard uh, Chad is still on the do not eat list. I just right, want to I'm, know. I'm going to keep, keep an eye on that. But overall, yeah, look, think about it. Gowanus is a neighborhood that the people who live there now hadn't even heard of it 20 years ago, let alone been from there, right? And then as all of this money has poured into that community, so is all the Superfund money to clean up the, the, the canal itself. And the two things go hand in hand. And now you can eat some piece of fish out of the Gowanus canal. In last week's episode with Matt Janiga, we talked about the um, the origins of um, of uh, buffalo wings. Yeah, and I just wanted to give a recommendation to readers. So I just got into a little bit of a rabbit hole on that, and I read a Calvin Trillin piece from the New Yorker many many years ago about the origins of buffalo wings, and it was unbelievably great. So Calvin Trillin is like one you know one of the greatest writers and food, food writers, writers um, actually, yeah. just fantastic. But it's a great story, and so here's the one little detail I'll give you is that. Um, it appears that at least in the in the in the use of the the sauce, the hot sauce, yeah. that is a, a, a practice that uh, originated in the black community in Buffalo, even though they've sort of been written out of the official history. Got it. So so it's it's like the blues. Well, it's like, it's the, like rock know, and roll. You know the origin story of, of hot chicken? No, I don't. So apparently, someone in Nashville, some husband was a terrible husband and like cheating and drinking and doing everything possibly bad, and his wife was really fed up. And, you know, this was back in the days where, like, husbands could still drink all night and then demand that their wife cooks for them whenever they get home. So she made him chicken, but she loaded it up with, like, cayenne <laughs> pepper and all, chili flakes and all kinds of hot shit, and he loved it. Do you think that's a true story? I've that heard That sounds story. like a country music song yeah, or something. I don't know. I, what I, I did to my I man. Could. So then <laughs> let me ask you, last question, last question. Okay. Is, uh, within New York City, what are your favorite wings? You know, I don't know that I, I go to Walkers for wings because mm-hmm. I like the environment and I think they do a good job. I wouldn't say that people should seek it out from far away, um, but it it works. And yeah, if, if you live here and once in a while you want wings, and Walkers is just a good place and the yeah. wings taste good. I, so I have the same answer, which is the Old Town Tavern, which Ooh, is yeah. kind of see. I, I feel that actually, uh, I I give, I give them props as well. Yeah, it's it's a it's a cool place to be. They are really good wings. Are they as good as the Anchor Barn Buffalo? Probably not. Um, but they're, they're enjoyable. Yeah, but they're enjoyable. So, all right. Probably have, a great, have a great trip. Thanks. Bye-bye.